I do think that if people did more listening and made themselves vulnerable and really understood the different lived experiences of people of different backgrounds, that would set the table to get to the place where training could really have an impact because there's a lot of learning happening and it's based on lived experiences and dialogue versus getting talked at or just a race to say what is or isn't true. Perception is reality for so many. And without honest dialogue, you may never actually get to the answer or understand what might be the nuance between your perception and reality. Greetings, folks, and a warm welcome back to Intersections. You know, our quest in Intersections is to, is to dissolve boundaries, is to be able to see things from a fresher, newer, more expansive light. And uh, today's conversation is going to be about dissolving one of these really important boundaries, that between business and society. How is it that a you know, story organization and other storied organizations of our time can pay heed to quests and hungers that are there in people, you know, around them in the social milieu, and use that as a catalyst for creating better pathways towards um, fulfilling life experiences, employment experiences, and just kind of everyday workplace experiences. We have in our midst someone who I have so much fondness and regard for and have been blessed to know over the last many years, Erica Irish Brown. She is a former investment banker, spent 15 years in capital markets and investment banking at Morgan Stanley, the U.S. Treasury and Lehman Brothers. She has moved from that into being a global leader in the diversity discipline and an agent of incredible change. She has led DNI efforts in institutions like Bloomberg, Bank of America, Lehman Brothers, and Goldman Sachs, and now is the Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer and the Global Head of Talent at Citi. For her contributions at Goldman Sachs, she in fact received the most powerful Women in Corporate Diversity Award in 2019 at the Black Enterprise Women of Power Summit. Uh, she is also serving on the board of Columbia Business School and Riverside Hawks, a youth basketball program in Harlem, New York. She has a bachelor's in economics from the State University of New York in Albany and an MBA from our own very beloved Columbia Business School. Thank you for joining us today. Warm welcome to you, Erica. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I thought maybe a good place to start with is something that you shared with me in one of our recent conversations, which really struck a deep chord with me. You know, you're talking about the kind of change that, you know, Jane Fraser, City's CEO, is seeking to manifest in the organization and how she talks about how she wants Citibank to be a bank with a soul. You know, what is she in, in some ways, like what are you really trying to do to the organization and the industry? Yeah, I love that saying, a bank with a soul, because it really speaks not just to us as a bank and a business, but what we enable through the business of banking, through providing access to capital uh, to individuals and corporations uh, and governments 
and what that means in terms of services they can provide, goods that can be uh, bought and sold. So, you know, how we function within the broader global society as a bank, I think, is the message when we talk about a bank with a soul, having culture and having empathetic leaders. And I think that's something else that our CEO talks about, empathetic leadership. And that is not in conflict with the message that we're meant to be excellent and deliver with pride, but to be empathetic as well. So you take an industry like finance and banking and, you know, you take the present moment and then it makes me wonder, people have operated in their own well-intentioned way in a certain context at a certain point in time with a certain set of assumptions about what makes you successful and what the rules of the game are. And there was a little bit of a shake-up, wake-up, you know, a big one, but relatively speaking, relative to today, it looks now like a, a small, a small shake-up back in 2008 with the mortgage meltdown crisis. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, that was one wake-up moment for the industry. And you've been part of it for a while, so you, you know that moment. And now there is the present moment. And with the shifts that are going on, dimensionally, like, how do you compare the shifts and you know, challenges of today versus that shake-up moment that happened in 2008? Do you see this as being in any way, you know, qualitatively or quantitatively similar or different? You know, I've never really made that comparison. When I reflect on 2008, the market landscape was different. The global landscape was different. Even uh, the growth of the tech industry at that time and the number of jobs was different. The economy was different. So there's a lot that was different. I think when I think about the current times, nobody contemplated global pandemic. Nobody contemplated firms working, you know, 98%, 100% uh, remotely and the reliance on remote working. I also think that it wasn't contemplated uh, that people would just opt out altogether and whether or not that was truly opting out or quietly quitting. So the landscape for employers has changed. And I think also the employer-employee dynamic has changed in terms Mm -hmm. of who has the power and who gets to dictate uh, the the new rules or accept or not accept um, right. the the standards that are set for work and frankly the intersection between work and life, which for the last couple of years have never been so closely conjoined, because for many of us work and life was happening out of the same household. Right. And it was very difficult to create those boundaries. You know, you are the chief talent officer, and I am really intrigued about how you and the senior executive team is thinking about what are the qualities that you need to nurture in today's time to Mm -hmm. create leaders that can navigate through and ultimately evolve and stabilize, right, and sustain organizations, especially as large and complex as yours, in these changing conditions where, like you said, the rules of the game are changing, you know, who has the power Mm -hmm. is changing, who calls the shots a little bit is changing, you know, it's a more hybrid work environment, all of that, right? And so, and you talked about, you know, Jane also wanting to infuse more empathy, you know, in, in, in banking. So how is that changing the way you approach 
uh, selecting, developing, supporting, growing talent? So leaders definitely have to take a more employee-first, human-centered approach to leadership. I think that's really important. I think we saw that at the beginning of the pandemic and throughout. I also think, to your point of um, this increasingly virtual and remote workplace, how leaders lead and manage and invest in people is different because you don't have that same level of in-person interaction and especially for industries like ours where it's an apprenticeship model in many ways in terms of how people learn how to do the business we have to learn how to develop and train our people sometimes not in person in order to do their jobs well Uh, i think that also remember we have now depending on the company four to five generations in the workplace everybody has worked with different tools have different educational backgrounds, different norms in terms of their work lives. And we have everybody in the, in the office and or working virtually working together. So how leaders lead across difference and create the communication channels necessary for four to five generations to communicate and work and learn from each other and understand each other and have an inclusive environment where everybody feels like they can belong and thrive. That's complicated as well when you think about really the, the melding of those generations and working, working effectively and efficiently. The other thing is that people want to be their authentic selves in the workplace. And true authenticity in the workplace, that's also new. And expecting their employers to share similar values, give back commitment to ESG, net zero, diversity, equity, inclusion. These are all major factors that, that workers want to know that they are at a place where their values are aligned with corporate values. And that can be a, a challenge at times. And even for some people where the corporate values are not aligned, they're willing to move on and find another opportunity. The last thing I'll say is that uh, people want to continue to grow in their careers. They want mobility. They want global exposure. And they are looking for uh, reward, both uh, financial and recognition. And companies need to make sure that they are embedding that into their culture as well. Uh, Because I think just getting good work out of people and the burnout culture that used to be a part of investment banks and financial services, that is not what people are prepared to sign up for today. So creating an environment with some flexibility, uh, with mobility and uh, recognition is also a big part of the talent equation. You know, you are a non-traditional, if you want to call it, or at least like a non, kind of like a career HR person. Like, you know, this isn't what you started, you know, your mm-hmm. vocational life with. There you were as a, an investment banker. You, you made a pivot. You made a choice to actually move into the space. And you made a choice to do this at a time when it wasn't necessarily a very established discipline or very fashionable or what have you. I mean, it's, you know, unlike the last couple of years where it's been kind of like the rage. So can you, can you go back to that moment? What is it that impelled you to making such a, I would call a bold move? 
So when I started on Wall Street over 30 years ago, uh, the field of diversity, equity, inclusion didn't even exist. So I did experience my early years working on Wall Street uh, in a culture that did not value difference and certainly was not focused on making me feel like I belonged or that I was included. and I felt like I was able to navigate that. I definitely feel like I experienced some challenges, but I also felt like I could play a role in helping to increase the number of women and people of color working on Wall Street and help to share uh, what I was learning uh, along the way. And um, that's, that was instilled with me sort of that, you know, give back, you know, teach other people what you learned and having a sense of gratitude for the advantages that I was given, the opportunities that I was given, and making sure that I was paying it forward. Uh, And that's really how it started for me in the early years. So I might have only been a year ahead of somebody uh, in the analyst program, but if there was something I felt like I knew, I was going to uh, give back. So with that being said, uh, while I really enjoyed working in financial services and uh, in high yield capital markets and the banking business, I did see the opportunity to play a leadership role in being an agent for change uh, over the many years um, to really create more of a systemic approach to creating a more diverse and inclusive workplace. So I think there were a lot of efforts, one-off efforts, specific programs, you know, minority internships, things of that nature that were programmatic and one and done or something that wasn't woven into the fabric as business as usual. And I felt like there was an opportunity to try to be an agent of change and make it business as usual, not something special or on the side or in addition to what was the normal uh, day-to-day activities of leaders and HR in the business. So for me, when I felt like I was more passionate about all the volunteer work I was doing in regards to diversity, equity, inclusion over my day job as an investment banker, I felt like it was a great opportunity to make the move. And uh, at the time, it was uh, a bold move, a brave move, a, a move people didn't understand. People thought it would be a career killer. I didn't think it was going to be a career killer, but I didn't think that the space would evolve how it had. I never expected to uh, be at executive management leadership tables and in boardrooms talking about this topic. So it certainly has evolved into more than I would have imagined, but I would have done it anyway, and I'd do it again. Yeah, that is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. You know, it um, speaks to a larger frame here than purely this field and the journey you've been on, which is uh, how does success come to people? And um, uh, there's this research, for example, that has been done on art students in college where they ask them, you know, why do you do art? You know, why are you studying art? And some of them would say it's because, you know, I want to be a really successful big artist. And others would say, I enjoy doing this. And then they've tracked them over 15, 20 years. And what they found is a lot of them ultimately left the discipline of art and went and did other things with their life. It wasn't an easy discipline for them to continue to, you know, stay with and, you know, strive with and succeed with. Uh, and then there were some who stayed. And, you know, some of them ended up in, in pretty good places in terms of their success. And those who ended up, you know, staying and becoming actually ultimately successful, they found were disproportionately those who, when 
Austin College had said they were doing it because they enjoyed it. You know, it was a discipline they enjoyed mm-hmm. as opposed to because they wanted to become big and, you know, all of that. So I was I was reading a little bit of that into your story. Like, wow, you know, you came into another time and there really wasn't any structure or shape or definition or sense of prospects of where this field is going to be and will it ultimately become a C-suite agenda issue or not, like you're saying. And, and here you are, you know, today, you know, it has become mission central, right, for, for so many businesses. So how cool, how cool. When you look back, there's so much that you must have learned over the years, what works, what doesn't work, um, experiments you've, you've run, some have succeeded, some perhaps not. So with the benefit of hindsight, what are like one or two things that you know today, uh, insights you can offer to other institutional builders, other who are striving to be agents of positive change, you know, um, from your experience about sort of how to do it right? I think one of the things that benefited me early on is that I led with the data and I influenced with data. And that's what I knew how to do because I was really an investment banker. And I think most companies, large companies like ours, uh, now take that data-driven approach to driving diversity, equity, inclusion at their firms. But that was not necessarily the norm at the time I had started using data to make the case for why there might be a disproportionate impact or an opportunity to um, capture a greater percent of a group or you know, promote more people. So I definitely think taking a data-driven approach is a great way to influence people. I also think that you have to meet people where they are, because if you don't meet people where they are, then how can they come along with you on the journey? And right. it's not unlike schoolwork. You know, if, if they don't know basic arithmetic, then why are you trying to teach them calculus? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you have to meet people where they are and bring them along on the journey. And, and like any idea or project, people have to feel like they're a part of it. So you can't just talk at people or tell them what they should do or set goals for them. Uh, People have to be part of the process. Everybody has to have skin in the game and feel some sense of ownership or, you know, what are we trying to do here and how are we going to do it? So I definitely have tried to be a good partner and be collaborative with business leaders as we've jointly set goals and jointly set strategies to uh, drive diversity, equity, inclusion at the firms I've worked for. Ultimately, there has to be accountability. So all the great ideas, work, strategies, uh, it has to be measured or have some accountability measure or mechanism at the end of the day to make sure that you're actually, in fact, making progress and that it's not just a bunch of activity without impact. So I do think understanding uh, what good looks like, what's a desired objective, and how are we measuring success, and how are we holding people accountable is definitely part of the equation as well. And and the last thing I'll say, and it even speaks to uh, what I was saying earlier, if you don't make it systemic and build it into business as usual, the changes that you'd like to see, then some of those changes or programs, they live and die based on individuals, right? And it's not part of the system. So I would much rather 
build things into the system. So whether or not I'm here at city or not, those practices, those policies, uh, they are maintained and hopefully drive the outcomes for the things that we're looking for. Wow, that's wonderful. This, uh, I'm just you know, trying to just organize my thoughts on so many great points you just made. And that's almost like a crash course you've given us on change making in institutions. Uh, I think you, you started by talking about the importance of data as a way to persuade, but then also meet people where they are and then carry them along with you, like co-creating with them, doing it in a way which is strategic, systematic, impact driven, holding people accountable, ultimately embedding it in the system, making sure that it actually impacts the sort of say like the hardware, not just the software, you know, just a few people's behavior, but actually the way they're perhaps incentivized and goals are set and performances managed and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a wonderfully complete frame, you know, to look at this through. I'm curious as we shift gears a little bit from the systemic to more the human aspect of this diversity and inclusion, DE&I training, for instance, has been a big thrust in the industry over the last few years. And, um, there has been more recently a growing pushback against some of it in terms of the way it is landing and how it is excluding more than including, you know, certain communities and people. And And recently there was, I think just yesterday, an op-ed in New York Times by Jesse Singo is talking about like how most of it probably may be ending up having counterproductive results as opposed to what it was aiming to do. What is your perspective on this um, big thrust that has happened in the last couple of years to say, you know what, people are bad. We need to kind of fix them, make them good, and let's make them comply with taking, you know, these four training programs. You know, have you seen something that truly works given that you're measurement oriented? You know, have you seen something that over time does deliver, you know, great outcomes or, yeah, have you not really focused on this lever as an important one for the kind of transformation you're driving? So I am a believer in providing training and even more importantly, tools to equip leaders, managers, people to be educated, to understand dimensions of difference, to understand what unconscious bias is, to have common language, to understand how to take an approach to inclusive leadership. None of that speaks to whether or not people are bad or good. And to me, training is one vehicle Right. Lived experience is another part of how people learn and and grow and how even just their perspective on the workplace and society. So there are many different experiences that feed into people and who they are and the types of leaders that they are. But without training, I think there's a lack of common language and common understanding. That's a jumping off point for difficult conversations and greater collaboration across uh, difference. So I'm an advocate for training. I think the content needs to be you know, strong. I think the content needs to be unbiased. And I also think even in talking about bias, we all recognize that uh, there is conscious bias, but there's also con- unconscious bias. And there's no training that is going to fix you know, unconscious bias. We all have it. It's how the brain works. But you can create greater awareness through something like unconscious bias training. You can create greater awareness 
by making people aware of what might be considered a microaggression or how to deal with uh, adversity in the workplace if somebody, you know, says the wrong thing or how to talk about race in the workplace or any number of topics. So I think tools and training is just one piece of the equation right. that should right. be part of a foundation of, of tools to drive a culture of inclusion and to equip people. You can't expect leaders just to know what it means to be an inclusive leader. You have to say, these are some of the behaviors of an inclusive leader. And you might even have the opportunity to, to cultivate the, those behaviors in leaders through a training pro process. But training has to be applied. And it has to be in an environment where people uh, feel safe, feel psychological safety, feel like they can make mistakes and have difficult conversations. I think you know, part of the essence of your question was when training takes the approach of naming and shaming, right? And I don't know that that's necessarily uh, the right approach either, because then you just get people that shut down, close off, don't feel like they're part of the journey and the strategy for diversity, equity, inclusion at the firm, and certainly uh, are afraid to make mistakes and therefore would rather just not address it or talk about it or take on the opportunity to have a greater understanding uh, about what diversity, equity, inclusion is and what it isn't, to build their cultural fluency and even to build their relationships across you know, people of difference that they may or may not have in the workplace. We're living through such an amazing period of time, really, compared to where things were 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I mean, you and I have lived through that period too. And the pace at which today we have created societies that are just becoming more open and more invested in wanting to see things through a much more attuned lens with regard to every human heart that is throbbing around them, every community, every, is it's in some ways exhilarating to see that capacity and that possibility, right, amongst us and kindred spirits who are really on that path. And and yet I, I'm with you, like, I, I really feel like it's so important, so important for us to be able to carry everybody along with us, carry it. So I, I go back to your original frame, right, when you talked about, you say, use the data, and then meet people where they are. And I think that meeting people where they are is something which we as trainers, and I put myself in the shoes of, you know, those people, that community who are seeking to help train, so important for us to kind of like have that dialogue in a way where we honor and respect and meet people where they are, but then, you know, try to like activate the better angels in their nature, right? How do you, how do you get the better angel? There? One of the things that I found personally very um, informative there is the field of cognitive behavior therapy, you know, Dr. David mm -hmm. Burns from Stanford is a preeminent exponent of that. I've learned a lot from working with him. And, you know, this notion of how there are these mental distortions, you know, that, um, mm -hmm. you know, I get consumed by you. I mean, we all do, you know, from time to time, overgeneralization or all or nothing thinking or mind reading or what have you. And, you know, sometimes I take this kind of, you know, field of, um, you know, unconscious bias and bias in general. And it just kind of abstracted more to just these mental distortions, you know, that we just face from time mm -hmm. to time. And um, it seems to me to be a little bit more of a warmer, friendlier, more welcoming, more open, more shared kind of human fallibility that, you know, any or all of us get into, you know, I don't hear back from my mom after calling her and now I feel like she doesn't care for me or something. And, you know, it's just, it's just like a made up thought in my head. But it's because, you know, we just have these traps that we get into as human. And, you know, and so if we were to, I don't know, like see 
you know, diversity training also approach it from that lens. I just wonder if we'd be able to do what you're saying is important to do, which is not make people feel in any way judged or, you know, I'm superior to you or something. It's just like, you know, we're all susceptible to these things. And it just so happens to be that in society, one way it's manifested is in suppressing the interests of certain groups over others. Perhaps even within those groups, there might be some people who are suppressing you know, certain people's voices more than others and all of that. So it just seems to be a human feeling that we all need to be just very mindful of, sensitive to, and we all kind of share that. Now, what can we do at a time like this in humanity to really rise to, you know, our fullest potential, um, right? Um, yeah. So if you could change the tone tenor a little bit and as trainers go into this with, um, you know, yeah, just a greater sensitivity attunement to how we want to carry everybody along with us. Uh, that's my hope and prayer, you know, of what uh, will be the next stage evolution um, and the broader landscape of DNI training. I think people have to yeah. keep an open mind and understand that everybody's lived experience is different. And that's yeah. what people bring to these trainings. And even in having these conversations and sharing what those experiences are, that everyone is open about, you know, how they feel why they have that perception and and the focus is on how do we move forward from that and having those difficult conversations and open open conversations also requires people to make themselves vulnerable and most of us are not really willing to make ourselves vulnerable in the workplace Uh, and then especially with senior leaders so many senior leaders also feel like they have to have the answers to all the questions and that creates an environment where there's more talking than listening. And instead of, of listening and trying to, you know, have a dialogue, people immediately go to the problem solving, which you have to understand the problem first. So, um, you know, I do think that if people did more listening and made themselves vulnerable and really understood the different lived experiences of people of different backgrounds that would set the table to get to the place where training could really have an impact because you know there's a lot of learning happening and it's based on on lived experiences and dialogue versus getting talked at or just a, a race to to say what is or isn't true or, you know, perception is reality for so many, right? And without honest dialogue, you may never actually get to the answer or understand what might be the nuance between your perception and reality. Thank you. I think that was a really beautiful instruction to give give us about how to really help evolve, you know, uh, humanity in, in the workplace. Um, I love this idea of, like, opening people up to being great listeners and to welcoming and listening to the stories of others, the lived experiences of others. Uh, at some level, I've gotten a glimpse of that through the personal journey storytelling that we do at Columbia Business School in my, in my class. You know, each, each you know, student shares a three-minute something from their life. And over the course of the years, you know, I've heard like five, 7,000 of these stories. And to your point, I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, I, I feel that I'm the student, you know, and they are my teachers, you know, through those stories. There's just so much one has learned. So certainly has opened my eyes up to so many other dimensions of human experience that I hadn't personally, you know, had in my life, but I feel attuned to more now. So, yeah, that's a, that's a great construct to have all of us take with us, you know, and you go back and think about how to infuse more 
you know, of the spirit of diversity and inclusion in our organizations to so think about sort of how do you create these spaces in which this kind of listening can happen and sharing can happen. It's beautiful, Erica. In closing, as we get to sort of uh, the home stretch of our time here together, yeah, I was just curious if you want to share anyone who has been uh, particularly formative as an influence in you in your being a change maker, you know, uh, any any um, individual from your, yeah, just a personal network or family or or public figure in history and all of that. I know, you know, there's one figure you and I both share a certain fondness for, but yeah, I'm just going to open it up to see who, who, who first comes to your mind. The first people that come to my mind are my parents and my family. Uh, you know, I think uh, having the benefit of a stable home life and having role models, having people who were invested in my education and my future and who gave me a sense of purpose from a very young age, as well as who gave me a sense of, of uh, obligation in terms of to whom much is given, much is required, right. and that uh, I was to have gratitude and give back for everything and every opportunity that I was afforded. That was who my parents, uh, who my dad was, who my mom is, uh, what my brother and sisters and I learned coming up, I was the youngest of five, so I had a lot of role models, and I also was always trying to keep up with my older siblings. Uh, so I think that was a great motivator uh, as well. And I think that that focus on education, I want right. to go back to that, because even earlier we spoke about just how many pieces of the puzzle there are to uh, to the economic cycles of families and backgrounds and where you live dictates the schools that you have and the schools and the education that you have dictates where you can go to college or not. And where, you know, there's so many different theater pools that, uh, and, and variables that can impact the trajectory of one's future. And right. uh, so my parents invested in my education early on and the return on that investment investment led me to Stuyvesant High School and college and graduate school at Columbia. And so I really am grateful to them for investing in my education uh, for those primary school years as well. Thank you for sharing that. It warms my heart um, since my parents have been so formative, you know, in my own life as well. Uh, so that's great. Thank you so much, Erica. I'm so grateful and thrilled. And it's really uplifting to hear um, the focus and purpose that it seems like now that you've shared this with us was formed very early in your life to whom much is given um, much will be asked for and where this is manifesting mm -hmm. what is your big dream as we close this out perhaps my last question what is your big dream in the years ahead that you want to aspire for you know i just hope to leave a legacy having led on diversity equity inclusion and being here at city leading on diversity equity inclusion and talent uh, we are a large global firm uh, in almost 100 countries. We can have an impact, not just within city, but in every country. Uh, we're a major yeah. employer where we, where we are. So I want the work to have an impact. I want the work to become systemic and, and lasting. And yeah. I want the work to become business as usual. 
so that diversity, equity, and inclusion is everybody's job. It's it's just part of how leaders lead and how we do business. And that hopefully this is a legacy that, uh, you know, this next generation, we have uh, Gen Z coming into the workforce now. We have another generation coming up. Uh, you know, I hope that the challenges that generations before me that I faced and what you know, some people assume are or are not opportunities for women, people of color, uh, people of different sexual orientations, people with different abilities. You know, I hope that we get to that human-centered approach, right? And that focus on intellectual capacity, ability, creating opportunities, and not having to worry about anything but, you know, succeeding in those opportunities and having them available to all and creating really true meritocracy. You know, I mentioned that I went to Stuyvesant High School and I went at a time uh, before people had, you know, private tutors and academies for the exam. And right. it was a very diverse environment and it was a meritocracy. And so I've always felt like I've experienced meritocracy, the beauty of diversity, uh, the outcomes, the innovation that comes from diversity, you know, at a very young age. I've seen it happen and work and be a natural part of an ecosystem at a high performing institution like a Stuyvesant High School. And I think uh, if that could be replicated uh, in the corporate workplace and at places like City where you have the opportunity to be successful based on the work that you put in and your capacity to succeed and not all the other factors and biases, uh, unconscious or otherwise that people place on you. Wouldn't that be a great thing for my children, their children and so forth? You know, and I don't mean just for my family, of course, I mean, for generations of people of difference. You're a special soul, Erica. And um, I know your parents you know, would be so proud of you uh, in this moment uh, with all you're doing. And that's such a beautiful dream that you've given us. And I love the idea of, you know, aspiring not just to manifest these things, but ultimately make them just part of the DNA, make it just business as usual. I hope that um, at some point you get the opportunity to do more storytelling, to take, um, you know, different chapters of your life, different projects, uh, moments, experiences, and you know, just more and more actively document and write them because there must be so much mm -hmm. that we haven't uncovered in this conversation so far, which can be so instructive and inspiring for future generations of change makers. Erica, much as there's so much more of it to manifest in your own career yet, <laughs> you know, you're nowhere mm -hmm. close to hanging up your boots. But, uh, but I do encourage you and I want you to consider that idea of doing more documentation of stories, you know, from, from your career and life. Yeah. Thank you for all Thank the beautiful you. causes you take on and for joining us today and I know my listeners are joining me and just wishing you, you know, Godspeed and all the best for, you know, all that you're going to manifest in 2023 and beyond. Thank you so much. And the same to you. You know, I appreciate uh, your friendship, your leadership, and uh, love the work that we've done together and the work that we will do together in the future. So thank you. Thank you.